Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, if you were listening to the last episode, uh, I went pretty long on that one. I try not to go as long on them, but sometimes there's a lot of information to cover, and it's best to cover it all at once. Uh, this one will not be as long, and I, like I said, will try to only sparingly do the very long episodes. Uh, today I want to cover a couple more things, though, that go into what we were talking about uh, yesterday, and these are things that uh, will help you with uh, not only literary analysis, but with um, researching and with doing things that are not connected to literature. So I want to talk about first pre-reading, and then the second thing I'm going to go into is research strategies. To begin with pre-reading, pre-reading sounds kind of strange, but pre-reading is a good habit to be into. Um, If you pre-read something before you read it, you're going to get much more out of it than if you just start reading. Uh, One of the things that helps people to retain information is when you've gotten the information multiple times in different ways. This makes the information much more likely to stick in your head. So when you pre-read a book, let's say you walk into a bookstore and pick up a book off the shelf that you might be interested in, um, if it's a uh, book on a topic you're interested in, you want to evaluate whether this book is going to be worth your time. So you are going to, one of the first things that you should do is open the book randomly and look at a few sentences here and there throughout the book. One of the things that this will help you with is to get an understanding of what level is this book written for. Uh, If you have a project on meteorology for your college course um, and you open a book about uh, the weather and you see sentences that talk about the puffy happy clouds and the smiling rays of sunshine, you're going to know right away that this is not the right level for what you're looking for. Uh, This is going to be something that is on the level for younger readers and not going to be something that will be useful as a college-level source. Um, The other extreme sometimes happens, too. If you're looking, you sometimes will open a book, and most of the words in there will seem like they're in another language because it's using a lot of jargon. Um, This means this book was probably written for experts in the field. It was not written for the casual reader. And so they're not going to take the time to explain every little um, piece of jargon they use. They're going to have the expectation that you know what these words mean. And this might be a book that if uh, you're not to that level, you might want to put aside for a later time until you know more about it. Now, we'll talk about this a little more when we go into uh, research strategies, Um, but you always want to make sure that the level of diction in the book uh, is appropriate to what your needs are, to the the level of coverage is going to match what you need. The next thing to do when you're looking at a book, and this is true of whether it's a book you're picking out of the bookstore or let's say, a college textbook for a course you're taking. Look first at the table of contents. This is going to give you a good general overall feel for what you're in for this semester. 
you're going to get a sense of what topics uh, you're going to go into. And the subheadings within the chapters, if they give you that in the table of contents, uh, will give you a little bit of a sense possibly of what the depth is. Now, some of the chapters don't have subheadings, some do. Some will actually in the table of contents have a brief description. So if they give you those, kind of read through them a little bit. The next thing to do is look and see if it has an index in the back or multiple index um, indices. This will tell you if the book is set up to be more user-friendly. This can help you, especially if you're using a book as a source for something, instead of having to read a 500-page book, um, you find out that the topics you're interested in in particular are going to be covered on pages 55, 56, and 58. Then you only have to go and read 55, 56, and 58 if you're using it as research. Then I would look at the chapters themselves and see, do they give you a chapter uh, introduction? Uh, do they give you chapter summaries? Things like this are going to be useful and help you to get a better sense of what's in the book. Now, let's say you have the book, you have the class, and you get assigned chapter one to read for homework. Uh, you're still going to want to pre-read chapter one before you actually go in and read it. So if it has, a, as it has an introduction, read the introduction. If it has a summary at the end, then read the summary at the end. Uh, if it has neither, or even if it does... Before you plow into reading the book, uh, go through and read the first sentence of every paragraph. Textbooks are generally written in a very formulatic way. The first sentence of every paragraph is going to be the topic sentence. The sentences that follow in that paragraph are going to be fleshing out the details, giving examples, elaborations, explanations. So if you go through a chapter in a book, in a textbook, and read the first sentence of every chapter, or I'm sorry, of every paragraph, you're basically getting a summary of the chapter, a summary of the main ideas. So then after you've done that, you've got an overall understanding of where this is going. Then once you've read that, then you can dive into actually reading the chapter. Um, and you find when you do this, if, especially if you have the textbooks that give you an introduction, a summary, and then you read the first sentence of every paragraph, and then you read the chapter itself, you've been exposed to that information in that chapter now four times. And information that you've been exposed to four times is going to be much more likely to stick in your head than information you just read through one time. Uh, if you have assignments of chapters to read for a class, I also always recommend students read with a pen. And I even do this with books I'm reading just for enjoyment. And if they're my books, I mark in them. If they're not my books, then I will mark in a notebook on the side. Um, people who have a problem with writing in books themselves, you know, feel free to keep a notebook handy, but you should always be reading with a pen. This makes your reading much more interactive. As I'm reading something, I usually will underline particularly good passages, um, 
if I have a passage that I read that I don't quite understand, I might draw a question mark in the margin next to it. Sometimes when I read further into the chapter, that question will get answered. Um, if I go through and read and don't get an answer to that question and still uh, am not sure about what it means, then I will go to the lecture and listen to the professor lecture on that chapter. And if the professor never covers my question and doesn't explain that part, uh, now I have a good question when the professor says, does anyone have any questions about the chapter? You know, professors prefer specific questions. If I am lecturing on a chapter and I ask if, you know, after the lecture if I say, does anyone have any questions, and someone says, I don't get it, I don't know how to answer, I don't get it, because I don't know how far back I have to go. Uh, do you not understand the material? Do you not know how to read? Do you not know the alphabet? How far back do I have to go? So a lot of times when a, pro when a professor will get a question like, I don't get it, they'll generally blow it off, because how do you answer when you don't even know what the question is? But if you've been marking your questions either, as I said, in the book or in a notebook, and the professor says, do you have any questions? You say, yes, on page 7 in the third paragraph, I don't understand what they're trying to explain there. And the professor can turn to the page, turn to the look at the paragraph, and then explain it. That is a good question. That's a question that professors like because they know you've actually engaged with the material. A lot of times a question of, I don't get it, you know, did you read the material? Did you pay attention to the lecture? You don't know where to start. But when you can give specifics, professors tend to prefer those kinds of questions, and you get your question answered. <clears throat> okay, now I want to move on to research strategies. Remember we talked about in doing the types of criticism that when you make an argument for a reading, you should always back up that reading or back up that argument, both with passages from the work you're um, interpreting and research from outside of that work that backs up your opinion, that backs up why you're saying what you're saying. And people often make a lot of mistakes in research. They will go to one place and then they're sometimes overwhelmed. The first place that most people go when they want to know about something is to the internet and they'll do a search. The problem with this is internet searches tend to bring up thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, or tens of millions of entries. And they're not necessarily brought up in the order that the best entries are going to come up first. Any entries that pay for advertising are going to come up before ones that do not. So I always recommend people not starting in the internet. You always, when you're researching a topic, you are building your knowledge. So another mistake that people will, go, will do is go right to the heavy uh, academic journals and, and try to read articles written for experts, and then they feel lost. And the problem is they haven't built up their knowledge to that point. You always, when you're learning about a topic, you learn the general parts, and then you get more and more specific and get into more and more detail. So depending on the topic, I usually tell students if it's a 
historical topic, if it's a timely topic, start with newspapers. Newspapers are generally written with a uh, third to fifth grade reading level in mind. Uh, some papers like the New York Times are written at a little higher level, but these are going to give you good um, historical information. Let's say you're doing a, um, a paper on, I don't know, the uh, shell shock of veterans in World War I. Um, you know, looking up articles about that in newspapers from the time period might be a good place to start. Another good place to start might be, and this is a source that people neglect, is a dictionary. Now, this might not be something that you will use in your final paper, but if you're writing on a topic and you don't know what the topic is, you don't understand the meaning of the word, a dictionary is a good place to start learning the meaning of that word. So let's say you're writing about shell shock. Your professor says, write a paper about shell shock, and you have no idea what that is. So you go to a dictionary and you look up shell shock. And it will also probably tell you that now shell shock is what we refer to as PTSD. Um, in World War I, it was called shell shock. World War II, they changed it to battle fatigue um, and, and so forth. So you start to get an idea, oh, I know what this is. This is... Thing, this is you know trauma caused by witnessing traumatic events or um, experiences. So you can start to build an idea of what you're talking about. Now, depending on the topic, there may also be specialized dictionaries in the field, and most fields have those. Specialized dictionaries can give you a good sense of how a word is used within a particular field, because sometimes a word is not used in a field the way that people commonly use it. Uh, an example I always give is the word intentional. If I ask you what does intentional mean, uh, most people would probably say it means you did it on purpose, you did it deliberately. Um, but if you're using intentional in philosophy, that word has a different meaning. Um, it has a very specialized meaning. So you might want to go to a dictionary of philosophy and look up intentional. And intentional in philosophy, you know, you might see it, you, the word uh, intentional used as an intentional object of consciousness. And if you don't, if you just know it on purpose, well, that doesn't quite make sense. It's an on purpose object of consciousness. Um, if you look it up in the philosophy dictionary, it will tell you it's an object that consciousness is directed towards. So if I'm looking at a coffee pot and I'm thinking about the coffee pot and I'm conscious of the coffee pot, that coffee pot is the intentional object of my consciousness. It is what my consciousness is moving towards. And once you know how a word is used within a field, you're going to find that the more technical things you read in that field are going to make a lot more sense. Because if you're using the general definition of the word, and it's being used in a very different way, it won't make a lot of sense. Uh, from newspapers, I generally recommend uh, magazines to get a little bit more in-depth. Now, magazines are usually more in-depth than newspapers, but they're not as in-depth as journals. And a lot of times people don't know what the difference between a journal and a magazine. Uh, the magazine is made for a general reader. It's made for someone who is not necessarily an expert in the field. So when they give you big terms, they're going to tend to break them down. When they give you complicated concepts, 
they're going to break them down into simpler terms. Whereas a journal, like the New England Journal of Medicine, or journals of philosophy, or journals of physics, they are going to expect that you are someone who is working in that field, a student in that field, a professor in that field, or someone who works in that field, a doctor or a physicist, and they're not going to explain every little definition. Um, they're going to throw big words at you and expect you know what those words mean because they're going to expect a certain level of knowledge before you even come to that. And that's why building up from the lower sources to that is going to be helpful because then by the time you pick up a journal, you're not completely lost because you have a little bit of an understanding of the topic anyway. And then the journal is going to give you a little bit more complex understanding of that topic. <clears throat> from journals, uh, then I recommend a place people rarely go, but books. Um, libraries are full of books. There's a lot of books you can get in electronic format. Now, people often shy away from books because they feel like, I don't have time to read an entire book to do this paper. But if you go back to the pre-reading strategies, you're going to realize you don't need to read the entire book. Let's say you're doing a paper on um, bipolar depression and you find a psychology textbook. Well, you do not have to read the entire psychology textbook because probably only a chapter or even a part of a chapter is actually going to deal with bipolar depression. And the way to find that out is to look at the table of contents, see if you can narrow it down that way, or look at the index. And the index, if it has one, in a, it usually will in a textbook, will say bipolar depression is covered on pages 680 to 690. And then you only have to look at pages 680 to 690. So books uh, should be part of your research strategy. Usually when someone has written a book, they have a lot more extensive knowledge of the field. Then after you've done all of that, that's when I tell people to go to the internet. Now you're not just looking up the topic in, in general. You have specific things you need to find. You know, I need to know this, uh, what is a particular drug that treats bipolar depression and its side effects. You know, that is something you can go and have a much more specific search because you're searching for particular answers um, as opposed to just bipolar depression and then you've got to wade through it until you find the stuff that talks about uh, what you wanted to know. So that's why I always say do the internet part towards the end because the internet should be filling in the gaps. And when you do the internet search, um, you need to look for biases and you need to look for the level that it's written uh, and look for the ethos, the credibility of the person who wrote it. Now, there are people that will tell you that they are completely unbiased. And anyone who tells you that is either a liar or a fool. Um, because you cannot be completely unbiased. Uh, if you were completely unbiased, you couldn't decide whether you should put your pants on in the morning or go to work naked because both, cho both choices are equally okay. Um, most people choose to put on pants because they have a bias against being thrown in jail, being fired. 
Um, if you don't have any biases, why should you go to your house after work instead of just the closest house? A house is a house. Because you have a bias for not going to prison for breaking into someone else's house. Um, biases will also determine what you talk about. Uh, bias is essential in even being able to function. You know, as I'm in the room I'm in, there are many, many, many things in this room. But I have to focus on only the things that are important to me. That is a bias. If I were completely unbiased, I couldn't stop thinking about every single mark in the carpet and the walls and the ceiling and the lights and the fixtures and where they are and the furnishings and every little nick and every contour of the furniture. And your brain would just be washed over with endless amounts of data that you couldn't do anything with. Bias allows you to say, okay, all of these things I'm pushing to the side and I'm focusing on this. So bias is actually something that is necessary, but it's also something that as you're researching and as you're thinking, you need to balance out. Um, if you find something that's too far biased in one direction, try to find things that take the opposite opinion and look at them. Also, as you're looking at things, we tend to be very critical of things we read that we disagree with. This is pretty natural. If you disagree with something, you're immediately going to start saying, what are the flaws? What are the holes in this? How do I get around this? If it's something you agree with, we tend to have a very big blind spot there. Because if we agree with it and we like it, we tend to just swallow that information without being too critical. And the problem is, if the information is bad, you tend to look like a fool because someone who has the opposite opinion will look at that information and go, really, you, you bought that that is based on nothing? So if you want to make good arguments, one of the things you have to do is not only be critical of the arguments on the other side, but be even more critical of the things you want to use as supports. <clears throat> uh, then... Um, when you're done with the internet, you can also remember that there are other things on the internet that a lot of people don't think about. You know, I would often require my students to have one or two video sources. And they would wonder, you know, how am I going to find a movie or how am I going to find a video or something like that. And I always point out that YouTube is not just funny cat videos. Um, a lot of colleges and a lot of professors will put entire lectures and sometimes entire courses um, worth of lectures on YouTube for free. So if you're wanting to do a paper on philosophy, I know for a fact that Yale has an introduction to philosophy uh, series of lectures where they give you the entire semester's worth of the professor's lectures uh, online for free. So there are lots of sources for information. Um, the thing that you always have to do is start general and go to the, uh, the more specialized. And you also need to be thinking about logic, inductive and deductive, and logical fallacies. And trying to look at what you're using, does it hold up to good logic? Or is it just a logical fallacy that makes me feel good and therefore I want to use it? Okay, 
I'm going to break off for today, and I hope all of you are well, and I hope to speak to all of you again soon.